It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Back together and ready to roll, and uh, we are double guests. We're back in the double guest business, mm-hmm. and we're excited about these conversations. A baseball tie this week, Kirk, as uh, we return to uh, the pastime. Yeah. I think it was Howie Long that once said, uh, you know, football is the passion, but yeah. uh, pastime does remain uh, baseball's moniker. And this week, uh, a story that is true and troubling that when this game was not quite 10 years uh, into its integration at the highest level, mm-hmm. uh, at the grassroots level, that some kids just trying to play this game were catching hell. A particular story from Charleston, South Carolina, when Chris Lamb joins us next segment uh, about his new book. And a little bit later, a former baseball player on the college level uh, has turned award-winning filmmaker. We'll visit with Frederick Taylor in a bit. But we got to go orange leather to start this thing off. And Mm -hmm. kudos to Kansas (laughs) for their national championship. We're not not talking about that one. (laughs) This one's for the ladies. (laughs) All right. And I want to first, after we congratulate um, Dawn Staley, her staff, and players uh, for their championship, it's important to note what she has done there. What that university saw as she was building her brand and her stature as a coach uh, and said, we want to do something uh, that we haven't done in our women's programs, let alone women's basketball. And we're going to make a transition and we're going to let this black woman do it. Mm. She, uh, you know, she has a lot of pressure on her. We knew that going into the season, the highest paid coach uh, in college basketball, women's college basketball. She she's making a ticket <laughs> in on, terms of now when we when we say a ticket, it's uh we talk about the seven figures. And so with what comes with that is a pressure, is an expectation. And I'll tell you this, Jax, watching Don Staley, not just as a former Olympian, WNBA player, one a college legend, but watching her navigate this new space um, as a head coach that she's been doing for a long time. It's it, it just felt right. It felt as if she's in a space in which not only is she shaping the lives of young women, but she's also shaping the lives of the of, of men and how people cover collegiate athletics and cover women's sports. She's been able to do a lot in this past year, even with the successes that she's already had at South Carolina. But to watch it in its full display this past weekend, I, I couldn't do anything but applaud the way that she has really put herself in, you know, like you think of college basketball, I'm thinking of women's college basketball, Gino Ariema, Pat Summit, you know, some of the bigger names that we've known. And then all of a sudden Don Staley is, is, is that's a name now. Like that, that's a name 
not just as a player, but as a coach, as a representative of women's college basketball. I thought this weekend was huge, not just for the sport, but just for Don Staley of what she, the, the torch that she's holding and carrying right now. I think it's even bigger. She wins her second national championship to your point. Mm-hmm. And she starts talking about us. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what I felt. Correct. I thought she was talking to me when she said um, that this has to represent something more right. than just this title for this university, which, listen, South Carolina Gamecocks women's basketball, mm-hmm. as we noted, top of the list. They are doing they a different in. thing as it pertains to commitment, <laughs> yes. resource-wise, to their head coach and to their program. She wants to advance this game. She knows full well you advance this game in many ways uh, through the media. Mm-hmm. And she wants to acknowledge the fact that there are black journalists that are committed to the elevation of her sport, women's sports, uh, people of color in sport. And so she's going to, she wants to cut the net up, mm-hmm. right? The, the championship net. She wants to cut it up and send it out so people can have a piece of it. Just hoping that it provides even more energy to continue to advance the platform of the black broadcaster, the black journalists, black coaches uh, who are in the space helping uh, lift her sport and so many others uh, and acknowledging that in a point where she could just be pointing at herself. <laughs> yeah. I think that she's, um, you know, we're just watching her talk, how eloquently she just really spoke about it and, to me, it also wasn't as if she was pushing an agenda on you. You know what I mean? Like sometimes, hey, you should be doing this. But no, it's just, hey, why aren't we? That, that, that's what I got from, hey, why aren't we celebrating it? This is huge. This is big news. The way that our sport is, is being played, the way that our women and how fantastic they are and watching them, they've got, I mean, trust me, they have some of the uh, all-name st- all, all team, right? You know, you got your Destinies, your Bostons. They got some of the great names in college basketball as well. And it's like you hear the stories and the stories are being told. And for people who are just catching up in the the, the tournament, in the final four and the championship, you realize like these stories have been there. And you're now creating more of a fabric of college basketball. And it's not just about the men's game. It's about the women's game and that how they can tend to, I think, come together and have this. The synergy. I've always felt, Jack, why couldn't the men's game and the women's game be in the same location? You know what I mean? Have the, the women play first and then the men after that. Like, just how much bigger this thing can go. But I think that's to the point of what Don Staley is talking about is that right. there's still more to be done. But thank you for the people who are understanding of where it needs to continue to go. This is a tradition that started with Carolyn Peck, by the way. Mm-hmm. She became the first black female head coach to win a women's basketball title. By the way, that was 22 years ago. Wow. Yeah. The first female coach coaching mm-hmm. women to win a title. Peck gave a piece of the net to Staley. Wow. Full in circle. 2015. Full circle. Think about that. So she's imparting this, you know, 15, 16 years later to other coaches. And it was under one condition. I'm going to give you this, but you had, there's a rule. Mm-hmm. You have to give a piece of your net. So in 17, 2017, two years later, uh, when the Gamecocks beat Mississippi State, um, she took a piece of that championship net um, and 
gave it to every black woman head coach in division one basketball. She's using the imagery, the mm-hmm. feeling, the connection, um, that, that ceremony that's a part of being at the mountaintop and sending the last opponent down and mm-hmm. standing there by yourself and imparting that moment upon others. It's impactful, obviously it impacted her. Mm-hmm. So well, we'll also I say it, uh, it impacted the, uh, I would say the uh, the culture as well, and when I say the culture, I she made she made history. Um, on Monday was it Sunday night? You know she made history with South Carolina, won the national title for women's college basketball. She's the first woman to win and coach a national championship team in a Louis Vuitton coat. <laughs> 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 and the Louis Vuitton shoes, right? You know what I'm saying? Look at Let's get into the jacket. I mean, <laughs> hey, everybody man. was talking about. I thought it was just like gear she was strolling in. No, uh-uh. I thought yeah, it I was thought so that, like but you know how we do, right? We, we know the cameras are there. Come on, she got a, one of the Louis Vuitton right? jacket, man. Coach is clean. You can't Come just on, go down to the store and buy that one, man. That was that was custom. That that was. That was nice. Well, we should know everything Don wears these days. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's custom. But again, she she's speaking to a larger demographic. You know what I mean? Um, her kids understand her. I think she's drawing more people because of her authenticity yeah. in this space. When that for me, that's what excited me about it. And it got me to thinking, what more could I do? Is it just me watching? Is it me tweeting? Is it me? How do I get more involved? I don't have to be all in and go down to South Carolina, but just to bring more eyes and attention yeah. to the game. I think that's what she's talking about. And I'm glad I, I was able to see that. Listen, if you can do it in a $5,000 jacket with $1,000 <laughs> boots and all Amen. the while become uh, the first black coach in men or women's division one basketball history, to win multiple national championships, uh, you, you do it any way you want. You do it how you do uh, it. Listen, we got to take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll visit with an old buddy of mine. I, I man, I, this is exciting for me uh, mm-hmm. because we get to dive inside uh, a really unique baseball story in the week that baseball is starting up. And Chris Lamb, old Bowling Green Connections, is the author of a unique story that I hadn't heard. Stolen Dreams is the name of the book. Uh, he highlights the 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All-Stars and Little League Baseball's Civil War. We'll take you back to July of 1955 when we come back on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. As noted, Mr. Morrison, yeah. we dive inside the sport that uh, stirs my soul. So we get ready for the beginning of uh, the major league season. The the funny thing is basketball has paid for every bill in my adult life, but baseball <laughs> is still, still what gets me all fired up. Uh, and when we think about uh, the opportunity for everyone to touch and feel and love this game, we have to remember that wasn't always the dynamic. And it's so great to have Chris Lamb with us, author of Stolen Dreams uh, the story of the 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All-Stars and Little League Baseball's Civil War. Chris, welcome to the program. You found the pers- perfect place to talk about uh, <laughs> this, this, this particular dynamic as this is uh, a weekly conversation of the cross-section of race and sports. 
And if you give me Charleston, South Carolina, mm. the summer of 1955 and baseball, I assume uh, this is the perfect landing for this conversation. Take us through how this story found you and why you wanted to tell. I found the story in church. I was a guy I went to, a uh, guy in our church told me about it. And I didn't, I, I never heard about it. I had written books about sports and race and, and the media. And he introduced me to a fellow named Gus Holt. Now, Gus Holt was not on this team. But Gus Holt in 1995 was managing his son's team in Dixie Youth Baseball, which was then integrated. And his son, Lawrence, came home. He made the all-star team. And his dad is so proud. And his son comes home and he's got his all-story uniform on and it's got a Confederate flag on it. Oh, wow. And Gus Holt's head goes like those cartoons. Remember, it just blew up. (laughs) And he wanted to know how the Confederate flag got on his uniform. So Gus Holt starts, he starts, he starts digging into this thing like a junkyard dog. And he, and he finds that, 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 that Dixie youth baseball, where his son played, which was now integrated, had been founded on the tiers of the 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All-Stars. And Gus then decides, hey, I'm going to bring these guys back. I'm going to have a reunion 40 years after. So these guys are all in their 50s. And he wants to bring back Little League Baseball to Charleston. And, And while he's doing this, his son comes down with brain cancer. So he's got all these things going on. And, and so what happened, and, and, and so what he finds out is in 1955 in Charleston, as you said, in the peninsula where, where most of the black families still had outdoor plumbing, these kids are playing baseball. These black kids are playing baseball and they're playing half rubber, which is, I never did, did, did this. You take, a, you take a rubber ball and you cut it in half so it doesn't go very far and you don't lose it because if you lose it, you don't have any money to buy a new one. Mm. So they wow. finally, it, it, and so the Cannon Street YMCA, which is the center point of black life in Charleston, the, the YMCA, they announced they're going to have the first black little league in South Carolina. And these kids flock all over to play. And, um, and, and they, and they're told the all, and finally put together an all-star game and the coach tells them, you guys are going to keep playing as long as you keep winning, like the NCAA basketball tournament. And, and they're, and they're ready and they, and they register for a tournament and all hell breaks loose. Wow. Because the white folks don't want integration going on and and it doesn't matter to me the, the story is these kids we've all been 11 what it's like when you're 11 i mean you're scarred for life the, the, the things that happen and when we all grew up we all played with anybody right. it was a meritocracy we didn't care and 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 it's these adults in the era of strom thurmond and all oh, when when racism was was just a redneck and 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 now these kids are not able to play. They win by forfeit because all the white teams pull out. They go to the state tournament. All the white teams pull out and create the segregated mm. Dixie youth baseball. And so that that's the Civil War part. And the Cannon Street team goes to 
uh, Rome, Georgia. If they win the regionals, they go to Williamsport. And Williamsport and the Rome, Georgia tells them, no, you, you, our rules, Little League rules, Little League rules ban racial discrimination. But Little League rules also said you had to win on the field to advance. And they say you're ineligible because you won. You didn't win on the field. You won by forfeit. And that becomes sort of the end of their season. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens, there's this big you and cry. Now, the, what makes this story to me interesting is this is one of the few times where white newspapers got involved and they, mm-hmm. and they really criticized uh, racism. Because as you know, I mean, white stayed out of this. White newspapers stayed out of this story uh, of, of racism, of Jackie Robinson, even of all these guys who came and integrated sports. But right. in this case, because it had to do with kids, they came forward and the president of Little League Baseball says, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you all come up, the Cannon Street team, why don't you all come up to watch the finals of the Little League Championship <laughs> World Series? You're laughing. Yeah, exactly. Really? What an in- <laughs> it's an insult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here, here. Uh, you know, it's like going on on a date and, and, and the woman says, I don't really want to go out with you, but tell you what, when I'm out with my boyfriend, I'll let you drive. <laughs> and, and, and so they, and, and, and they yeah. go up there. And the idea being is you can't, you can't achieve your dreams, but these white can't, but these white kids can, and you can come up and watch them on the field. And no, so, Chris, yeah. yeah. No, I was thinking because, uh, you know, you kind of brought me back to my youth. I played, you know, a pop, uh, pop Warner football, but also played Little League baseball. Little League was like my first love, Chris. And so just kind of reading this story and I was going back into when I was playing and how baseball brought so many different communities together, especially within the black neighborhoods that I grew up in in Oakland, California. But that being said, the one thing that I was just kind of reading going back is just what was going on outside of Charleston that our country was kind of going through that a story like this sort of kind of, you talk about it for a little bit, but then maybe gets swept under the rug a little bit. Why was that? That was Brown versus board of education. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1954, the Supreme court says there's no school segregation and, and the South kind of thought, well, well, we'll ignore it. We'll ignore it. And then a year later, in May of 1955, the Supreme Court came back and told them, you have to desegregate with due deliberate speed, which was a cop-out. And so everybody went slow, everybody dragged their feet. But what it did is suddenly, you know, before, you know, black and white kids could play together, as we were talking about before. After that, their parents said no. Uh, after that, the idea of, of of blacks going to going to the same schools with whites became as objectionable as as blacks playing baseball against whites. Because according to the logic of the day, if you have if you have blacks and kids going to the same schools playing baseball together, the next thing you know, blacks and whites are going to be marrying or dancing or something like that. And so. And so, so Brown versus Board of Education is a big part of this story. Where, and that was the idea that motivated the, the president of the YMCA. He thought that, hey, if we can put a, a, a foothold in Little League Baseball, if we can integrate Little League Baseball, we can integrate schools, we can integrate swimming pools, we can integrate theaters. That, that was his motivation. But that, that, it, that's why Robert Morrison was pushing this issue. Chris Lamb, author of Stolen Dreams, with us here on Forward Progress. 
Chris, this strikes me as like the one step like back. Like you have this, as you know, collision course with segregation and bigotry and this, the way of life in the South. Even if I accept that, this seems like the next layer of overreach because if I'm not mistaken, this entire Cannon Street All-Star team, that team's all black, right? Right, right, right. And so the teams that they would be playing would be all white. So it's not as though the teams are going to integrate. It's a competition in theory. Now I'm feeding the ignorance, right, of white versus black. And even that was too much. Exactly. In 1955 right. was, in, in that, South Carolina. And, and Jason, that was the argument. If this is baseball, they're not going to be, it's not like football or basketball. We're going to have, they're, they're, they're going to have contact as if that matters. Right. That there was no, it's, we're going through the same stuff today. We can't, I can't teach this in a school. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these kids would, they would, they would play basketball at the Jewish community center right there in, in the peninsula of Charleston. And, mm-hmm. and, and they would play white kids and black kids would play basketball together, but they would have to go get drinks of water from different water fountains. You know, Chris, one of the things also too, is uh, going back as a youth, obviously this is something that can scar you for many, many years. Like what was the kind of sort of the, uh, everlasting effect that a lot of these kids <clears throat> had at the time, as you talk to them as adults, what do they remember most and what sort of did they take with them uh, in sort of in this whole entire incident? I think like an abusive situation, they like some abusive situations, you just bury it and you bury it and you bury it. There's a guy who I interviewed in the book a lot named John Rivers, who became a very successful architect. He said he never talked about it. He didn't talk about it with his friends for years, for 30 years, maybe. And and he just I didn't want to talk about this. And and we all use these grievances different way. We all we all respond to is some of us use it as motivation. Athletes are really good at that. Right. They use it for a motivation. And that's what John did. John became a extremely successful, uh, a, a successful architect who's now retired in painting in uh, in Ecuador. Uh, you know, but some of the other guys were, there's there one fella who even at, at his high school reunion where Gus Holt comes up and he says, hey, were you on that team? And the guy thinks about it and he starts crying and he's mm. 50 some years old and, 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 and they still, they still are affected by this thing. And, it, and, and that's what happens. I, I have no idea what this is like, but, you know, I, 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 I've been told it's like having your soul scarred. Mm. Stolen Dreams is the name of the book. The 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All Stars and Little League Baseball Civil War. I want to go back to uh, the part of the story that you shared about the advancing of the team. Little League had on the books a rule that that forfeiture rule for everybody. Yes, but they wow. didn't. They also had a rule that says we prohibit racial discrimination. And all the white teams signed that document, but they did have this, this rule, and I don't really understand it. I think they had the rule; they weren't thinking about this kind of situation, and why they didn't make an exception right. is beyond me. And this is something that they took a lot of abuse from 
newspapers, white newspapers. Uh, Dick Young used to write for the New York Daily News, does a column, a blistering column, where he criticizes not just uh, the South, but also Little League Baseball. And he interviews Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson, yeah, Jackie Robinson says, this is so stupid. He says, I'd laugh if it were funny, but it's not funny. And, and so, but yeah, I don't know. Okay, you have a rule, you make an exception. And they didn't do that. But the rest of the story, Little League Baseball comes out okay. Little League Baseball brings the players back in 2002. Uh, Little League Baseball tells the white teams, you got to play the Kansas City. It says in our charter, you have to play them. And they say no. And they say, okay, you guys, you're you're done with our organization. Yeah. That's the one thing I always remember from Little League is that um, it's – you have not only the U.S. element, but always think about the international element right. that you're bringing in folks from all different countries, all different walks of life. And I can only imagine kind of what's going on here. But when I look at Little League now and I'm watching the teams of, of uh, from come from Asia or Kirishaw, Puerto Rico, all these different uh, elements of what purity of what young baseball is. And yet we sort of tarnished it back then because of the interracial divide. And now when you think about Charleston, South Carolina now, how far have they moved from where this is at? I know that the Confederate flag is no longer part of the state flag anymore. Uh, There's certain aspects that we felt like that have moved forward. But when you think back to then and where South Carolina is now, how much movement has there been? Oh, they've moved probably all the way to 1930. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's. Actually, Charleston more than the rest of the state. It, it's you know they're it, it's a fairly progressive city, um, but they took down the Calhoun statue and and I've heard white people say it's just a statue. Why you? But but this statue faced the black neighborhoods and the black and the black kids are or the kids are telling me that we grew up with John Calhoun sneering at us and telling us. You're no good. You're never going to be any good. Mm. And then there was the shooting at the at the at the Mother Emanuel Church five or six years ago, yeah. where a, a white supremacist Dylan Roof, quoting Donald Trump and saying, "Only I can fix it," goes in and and murders and and fires off seventy two bullets and kills nine people. So it's still there. You Chris Lamb, the author of Stolen Dreams, with us here on Forward Progress. Before we let you run. The one thing that kept running through my mind during this conversation is the 11 and 12 year old that never got the chance to play against these kids from the Candace Street All-Stars out of decisions that were made far above uh, their age and experience. Did you hear from anybody or have you heard from anybody that were on these teams that that forfeited these games? uh, Yeah, the white kids, you mean? Yeah, the white kids? Yeah, exactly. I I did an interview view them but they're quoted in newspaper articles they got together at different points during reunions oh, at, yeah. at the at where the charleston river dogs play at the, the team zone by mike Vack. um and they talked and they all said they all told the cannon street all-stars we wanted to play you it was our dads it was yeah. our dads that did this we wanted to play you and that's the great thing about being 11 and 12 you just want to play yeah Chris, we appreciate the time. Come back anytime. All right. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, that You need for us to have a discussion about. This is absolutely fantastic. Uh, 
get it in your library, folks, immediately. Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Kenneth Street YMCA All-Stars and Little League Baseball's Civil War. Chris, thanks for the time. We'll take a quick break when we come back. We keep it with uh, a baseball theme, college baseball player turned Emmy Award winning filmmaker. Frederick Taylor joins us next here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Right back to the guest line we go. And what a pleasure it is to have Frederick Taylor on the program. Frederick is a global content expert artist and advocate for the emancipation and quality of all people. Now the co-president of Tomorrow Pictures and chair of uh, his digital platform, TomorrowPictures.tv. Frederick, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. And I want to start off with your inspiration to have your own space and platform. So many of us dive in, want to be part of a big monster machine, but but you had a a different view about what's good business and the inclusion of diversity of culture and how you drive that, how you can lead that uh, by having your own projects to Greenlight? It's really interesting. I I mean, so much of who we are as people is who we come from and our family heritage is our lineages and our aunts and our uncles and grandparents and things like that. And I had a great grandfather who was a very industrious man, lived in Memphis, Tennessee, owned his own um, feed store. He was a pastor of a church and a postman. He had three jobs all at the same time. And so he was a very self-sustainable guy. And one of the things everyone always talked about about him when I was a little boy was how much of a pillar of the community he was, how much of an aggregator he was of intellect and culture within the community of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, And I really took that to heart, you know, in in moving forward as a man um, wanting to sort of find my own way. And I discovered very quickly that some of those those types of uh, belief systems that that come from the core elements of the African-American community apply to the community at large Mm -hmm. in the world that we're in now. So I really encourage a lot of people of all cultures, don't lose your past. Don't forget about your your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents (laughs) and things like that, because there, there are some things in there that elementally can help you achieve your goals. And for me, it was, you know, be your own man, stand for yourself, believe in what you believe in and run your own business. And you will be able to expand not only in your community, but communities beyond your own as, as, as well. Um, we have a lot to offer and we just need to really seriously consider it. Unfortunately, a lot of people are encouraged to just get in the system, get a job, just do this mid-level management, you know, so, and, you know, if you work here hard enough, long enough, they'll let you lock up at the end of the night. <laughs> um, so um, I think it's important that we want a little bit more than just that in life. You know, Frederick, you uh, have a sports background and in that sports background, you know, everyone's always focused on how could they be the best at the, the sport that they play or they want to achieve the ultimate status of playing in the professional ranks. But then at some point you feel like you start to sort of move to in a different direction. You move to what your passion really starts to take over. When did that passion for you start to say, hey, I, I like playing sports. I love baseball, but man, I think I could be really good at doing this. When did that really start to click for you? It was a two set. That's a great question too. Um, Cause you got to recognize in life when the doors are there and the windows open and you got to know when to leap. 
Um, it was two things. Uh, the first one was uh, I started to have classes that were offered once a year and they were conflicting with practice. Okay. Yeah. And it was like, okay, if I keep playing ball, I'm not going to be able to take this course. I'm going to punt on this course for a year or two, which then will extend me outside of the four-year box for college. And there was just something inside of me that said, you know, I want to be the guy that says he got out of school in four years. I don't want to be the guy that said he got out in seven. It didn't feel good to me. Right. And then the thing that just sort of iced it, a hard inside slider. <laughs> about a 90 mile an hour slider that's breaking on the inside part of the plate and cutting in on the, the left-hand side of the plate. And then you're just looking back at the catcher and the umpire is like, boom, you're out of here. <laughs> I would just see that pitch over and over and over again. And do I want to do the work to, to make that adjustment at the plate as a hitter? Because I knew if I didn't, they would just throw it. They'd feed me that all day long, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so I would have to do that work. Now, where do I want to do work? Do I want to do work getting back into the classroom and excelling in a space where I had a lot of skills? I had a very high aptitude for it. I was very good at it. And I was very excited about it. Or learn how to hit a slider. And then take seven, eight years to get out of school, learn how to hit a slider, go to the minor leagues. Maybe I'm going to make it or not. I don't know. You got to pick. And it's the hardest thing you do in life is choices. Who your friends are, who your, you know, your girlfriend is, all this other stuff. You got to pick, you got to pick, you got to pick. You can't have it all. And I just made one of the toughest decisions that I've ever made in, in my life. And it was, I, I chose an intellectual career and a social justice career over, over ball. Even though Bob's very appealing, I'm not going to lie. Come on. <laughs> you know, that's right. At least you found out a little later than I did. <laughs> those pitches were coming in high school. Man, that's, those are top hard sliders. Hard Man, sliders. that was like, see ya. So, like, yeah. how does someone throw a breaking pitch that hard? Come on, It's man. unreal. unreal. And, we, and we have to commit well before, right? <laughs> you do. you you, you got to be all over it at the point of release. Yeah. Come on, man. Exactly. <laughs> it's very hard. Frederick Taylor, co-president of Tomorrow Pictures with us here on Forward Progress. Uh, we talk about all the time, consistently, our main platform and topic on this program, cross-section of, of sports and race. At this stage, the majority of sports we talk about, part of the entertainment industry. Uh, so that intersection of sports and entertainment, and there's always that tapestry of, Athletes wanting to be uh, entertainers, entertainers wanting to be athletes, that, that space right there. It all, to me, at this point, is all the same thing when you talk about how much money is deriving from this space. And now we even, Kirk, covers both spaces in football, college and pro. And now with uh, basically what we were all afraid of for so long and it was all happening, uh, the money can now arrive legally. Mm -hmm. in that space uh it, it's all one big happy entertainment um space but that level of competition does sure. keep sports entertainment a little bit different or 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 is it all the same it's all of the above mm. it is a little bit different and it is kind of sort of all the same as well and now you don't have to drop off bags of money at the lucchese house you know, it's changed to a certain extent. 
Right. Don't think like that element has just left the building. That element has just moved into a different space. And, you know, sports is big business and it's been a big aggregator of big business for a very long time. I would get a hundred years plus, you know, when you think about the Black Sox scandal, you know, it's over a hundred years ago. It's amazing how much this sport has driven us in culture and politics. You know, we're celebrating Jackie Robinson again this week as, as, as well. I mean, to think that like a baseball player could change the world just seems crazy, but it does, you know, and even someone like, you know, Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson in that era, I mean, they just completely changed the dynamic of, of, of basketball as, as, as well. I mean, I remember when Doug Williams won the Super Bowl, you know, as a kid, I mean, and just like, there's never been a black quarterback ever in the history of the NFL to, you know, win a Super Bowl and, you know, everything changes, you know, and now, and, and I didn't think that we were going to normalize black quarterbacks in my lifetime. Growing up as a kid, it was just like, oh, they can't play. They can't play. They can't play. They can't play. I mean, the, the amount of heat that Randall Cunningham used to take, and he's a great quarterback, <laughs> you know, looking back on it, it was ridiculous. People gave him a hard time. He had to like, I remember because I grew up in Philly they rotated him and an aging, crippling Ron Jaworski, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was horrible to watch. Yeah. It was ridiculous. They're like Jaworski gets the first two downs. And then on third down and like 57 yards, Randall Cunningham comes in and he's expected <laughs> to get a first down. That's insane. You know? <laughs> so the, the, the barriers that people had to climb over is, is, is well. So to me, they are, the same. Now they are a little bit different because the expression is a little bit different. You know, the, the part of your brain that you're using at times, you know, in, in filmmaking, you start to get into these tighter windows in, in order to succeed. And you see it when you look at like Jordan Peele's film, Get Out. Awesome film. One of the greatest films, period. Greatest Hollywood films ever made, especially within the horror genre, you know. And then his next film, Us, he has more money, more talent, more opportunity, and it's not as good of a film. Still a good film. But it's like, yeah, it's not Get Out. Get Out was, like, amazing. Yes. <laughs> Us was like, it's okay. You know, and um, how does that happen? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's like the Lakers. They won a championship two years ago, and now... I don't even think they can, right, I don't think right. they can beat a D-League team. They're terrible. <laughs> They're terrible. Oh, yeah. man. You yeah, know, terrible. Frederick, one of the things I was uh, just kind of looking through and, you know, obviously with all of the things that you have done and, and accomplished, and I'm thinking about the different cities that you've lived in from Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Atlanta. How does those living in those cities, being in those different communities, how does it shape you? How does it formulate your thinking? Because I know for me, I grew up in the Bay Area. I live in Los Angeles now. I've lived in Jacksonville, Florida, lived in Buffalo. Trust me, being in these different places, it does shape your thinking. It shapes your mind because the way that you, in these certain places, the city moves different. And sure. you sort of move with the way the city moves. You have no choice. It's a school of fish. They all move together. You got to go with, you got to go with the flow, so to speak. And then there's this little tiny thing that tweaks in there. It's, um, if I can say this and be uh, polite, 
we're black men. Right. And it's different in different places you go in different cities. Correct. You know, Jacksonville is going to be way different than San Francisco being a black man. <laughs> just trying to get to your car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just, and you learn, you learn these rhythms and these patterns and these beats. Right. You know, and then also in the Northern cities, the cultures interact more. Like, you know, in the North, it's just like, yeah, that's my Muslim friend. And yeah, that's my Korean friend. Yeah. That's my Greek friend. Right. It's just, it's just normal stuff in the South it's more segregated and these people live in their own little enclaves and areas and you have to make an effort to run into them versus you're going to trip over a Pakistani walking down the street in New York, you know, and people notice you too. Like, you know, I will, other people of other cultures will come up to me and say, Hey, we were just watching you. And like, we really like you. You're a really interesting person. You're a strong, like people will say that to me. They'll say, you're a really interesting black man. You know, um, you have an impact on people constantly as a man of color, no matter where you go. And then you see it within your own cultural groups as, as, as well as you move around, too. So all of these things are always constantly influencing your sensibilities and the way that you think and how you perform as a person. And it affects your art and your storytelling and your documentary ability and things like that. I'm doing a project right now about Asian-Americans assimilating in Atlanta, the Burmese people from Miramar. And I'm a black dude, but this group of Asian-Americans are delighted to have me come in and make a film about them because I understand something about assimilation. And I understand something about internal cultural pride in a culture where it's dominated by a whole other culture who at times sometimes overlooks some of these other diverse cultures or compartmentalizes them or tries to commoditize them. And then how do you rise up out of that? You know, so there's so much power in being a person that moves around the country that sees all of these different things and different people as well. And then you just get an added bonus because being a black guy is pretty awesome. <laughs> right about that. <laughs> right. Like everybody asks me, they're like, oh, so if you could come back and be something else, what would you be? I said, I'll be a black guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I just know if I keep coming back at it, I'll get better and better and better and better. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to make less and less mistakes. That's my sci-fi movie for a black guy. He keeps reincarnating himself. And he just gets bigger and better and better and better and better and less and less mistakes, you know, because you always see it coming. Everything's coming at you full speed front on. And then you just have to learn how to defend it better. The treatment's already written. I love this. Absolutely. I didn't know this, that we were going to be in a think tank. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we are. An hour think tank every week. Frederick Taylor, award-winning filmmaker with us here on Forward Progress. We're going to talk about one of your uh, projects out right now, Counter Histories. Yes, sir. Uh, Rock Hill. It, it's the, the Friendship Nine, basically, their story, which led to the Freedom Rides. Uh, your feeling about how the project rolled out for you, and, and why did you want to tell their story again uh, from, from, your from your lens? I think the biggest reason that I wanted to tell the story was because it was about young Black men who were in college who wanted to do something about their situation. Mm. And they were very inspired by uh, John F. Kennedy. He had just been inaugurated literally a week before they decided to do the counter sit-in, you know, and it spoke to them, you know, 
ask not what, you know, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It meant something, it, it, it was transformative for them. And cause here's this Irish guy talking about it. And then these black guys are like, oh, wow, we get that. How can we implement that in our world? And so I loved the connectivity of it, of that I believe it takes all the cultures coming together to be able to get or to rise and to get us to a better place or uh, space. So those were initially some of the things that I found fascinating about it. And then of course the, 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 the buses and, um, John Lewis, the emergence of John Lewis as, as well. Sure. And in um, that same sort of arc with Martin Luther King, and uh, there was so much going on at that particular time, you know, the fall of, um, or the rise of communism with uh, Fidel Castro in 1961 as well, the, they were building the wall separating uh, East and West uh, Germany uh, as, as well. There were so many things that were connected to that. And I just loved the idea of this black story being connected to all of these other world and global events at the same time. You know, you know, the Kennedy administration was the big turn to finally get us out of the 19th century as far as our mentality about diversity was concerned. And it really inspired these young men to move forward in a way that they weren't even sure what was going to happen. The only thing they knew was I mean, we're going to go into a diner, demand to be served, refuse to leave. We're going to get beaten. We're going to be taken off the jail. They knew that <laughs> outside of that, they had no idea what was going to happen because this was back when people were lynched. Mm. So these young men were like, yeah, I may not go home. Some of us might get killed, but they did it anyway. And I would challenge anyone today to say, are you ready to get killed over something? Mm, not so mm. much. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we don't do that anymore. Or at least we don't think that we would do that anymore, but certainly push comes to shove. But for them, that was the push and that was the shove. And so I really wanted to tell that story and relate it to a modern audience. So a lot of these young people, no matter what color they are, when they feel like things are getting them down and the world is stacked against them, hey, get up, dust yourself off, take that standing eight count and keep swinging. You can't quit. That's what the story's about. That's what drew me into it. Right, you come back here anytime. This is an absolute delight. <laughs> I mean, we, we might have to do an hour with We need more time. We need more time. Yeah. This is <laughs> great. I love, I love this. Get this yeah. man back on for an hour. Next project, <laughs> we're part of the junket, but we get an hour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> appreciate it. That's all the Thank man's going to give you. you <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we appreciate it. Continued success. Thank you, my friends. You yeah. got Frederick Taylor with us here, co-president of Tomorrow Pictures. Uh, on Forward Progress. We thank him for his time. Thank you so much uh, to Chris Lamb as well. The book, Stolen Dreams. Pick this up uh, as we get excited and feel the joy of the opening and return of baseball, particularly after their delayed start. Uh, it'll make you remember that it wasn't available for everybody. Uh, yeah. And that's important to grasp onto. The 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All-Stars and Little Baseball's Civil War, the subtitle on that text. For our producer, Pernell Brown, Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress.